all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Well, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. <laughs> did you like that one? I did. <laughs> um, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com, especially with any research and or topic suggestions because it's searchable for me that way. And join our All Bad Things discussion group on Facebook if that's a thing you do. Somebody recently asked if they could start a Discord for us. Okay. So that might be another thing. I think it's like a chat room. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not old. sure. I was like, I don't I'm know. I'm so old. Uh, because I know not everybody does Facebook wisely, frankly. But I am mildly unsure what exactly Discord is. I think I'm not well, even going to speculate it sounds anymore. Like, sounds like discourse. So. Yes, but I think it was originally started for like gamers or something. Akshay once had me in a Discord okay. discussion for something, but I didn't understand it, so I dropped out. <laughs> Kids today. Kids today. What you drinking? I am drinking a Fiesta Fiesta, which is a jalapeno lime lager. Oh, that's why or there's chili little, pepper. That's why they're little chili peppers. Yeah. It's so cute. From uh, Casita Cerveceria. Yes. Mm -hmm. Casita Cerveceria. I've never heard of this place. Yeah, same. It's in uh, Farmville, Farmville, North Carolina. So that's outside of Greenville. We looked it up so that we weren't doing it while we're recording. Um, but it's very it's like good. like an hour out of here. Here, try. Okay. I think, I think you can have it. Yeah, if it's a lager, yeah, yeah, typically. Usually lactose is the main thing. That's true. And those are generally found in... In a number of beers, Stouts, but yeah, heavier generally beers. darker beers. Yeah, it's not. I was going to say it's not bad, but that's not true. It's actually pretty good. I like it. Mm, yeah, it's very light. It's good. It's really warm it's here. Good today. Summer. It's a good summer beer. <laughs> it is, yeah. I am having Untitled Art, a key lime ginger sour. Uh, Wait, or is Untitled Art the name of the brewery? I, I think it is. It's all over the Oh, can. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Untitled Art is the brewery out of Winocky, Wisconsin. And oh, I yeah. guess the oh yeah. I, I guess the name of the beer is just the key lime ginger sour. It's good. Let's it's see. a little warmer than I'd like, but that's just because it was sitting in the car for a minute while we were out. Yeah, it is good. It is, isn't it? Yes. Uh we went to pharmacy today, which was nice. Always good to get over to pharmacy. Which bottle is our, and beverage. Uh, yes. Our bottle shop, our local bottle shop in Cary. Uh, it's good to, now I'm just starting to ramble about how it's good to support local businesses, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, if you're in the area, we have several listeners in the area, so. We'll support your local businesses if you can. Mm -hmm. That's, a, that's a good just yeah. takeaway from that. And plus that. it's a cool, uh, bottle shop. We don't hang out there anymore, obviously, due mm -hmm. to COVID, so we just go in and buy beers, but we used I'll to, we used to go there, hang out, have a beer or two, yeah. and then buy some beers and go home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was nice. Yeah, I remember back in those days. <laughs> yeah, like fifty years ago. I know it feels like it. It, does. it feels like it. This past week feels like it's been fifty years, frankly. Kind of does. <laughs> um, what else was I going to say? Oh, 
So I know this is going to be boring, guys, and I'm sorry, but it's actually extremely pertinent. I'm going to talk a little bit about taxes. Just a second. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you find, and this might pertain to you too, if you find that all of a sudden, starting in September, your take-home pay is a little higher, chances are your company is participating in a program set forth not by Congress, but rather by an executive order from the person currently heading the executive branch of the White House, Voldemort, <laughs> who <laughs> who decided it would be a great idea to suspend payments uh, or the requirement of payments for employee portion of Social Security. You don't need to know specifically what that is if you don't. The main thing is everybody, one of the taxes that gets taken out of your paycheck mandatorily is 6.2% for OASDI, Social Security, whatever. Anyway, Trump decided what a great idea it would be during election season, and yes, that's the cynical view of it, to give people 6.2% more in their paycheck by not making them pay it from September through the end of the year. The problem is this is a deferral plan, not a forgiveness plan. In other words, for those four months, you don't have to, and your employer does not have to collect those taxes from you. However, between January and April of next year, you must pay them back in full. Okay. In other words, your employer is going to be responsible for withholding double between January and April. Sounds like somebody's trying to buy an election. Where do I always hear that from? Anyway, we're, we're not going to go down that road. So I, that's just a... We will spare you. Barring wise the, the politics of it, this is all U.S. granted, obviously. Fortunately for the rest of the world, you don't have to listen to this ass dick. That's <laughs> that's a new one. I like <laughs> it that. Is, it just came ass out. Ass dick. <laughs> but <laughs> to fuck face. Um, but I'm, I'm merely putting it out there to say... Be careful in your financial planning for the beginning of next year, because if that happens at the end of this year, you might as well just go ahead and save up because you're going to pay. You're you're going to be paying on the back Mm -hmm. end. Yeah. So um, not all it's not mandatory participation. So it's possible your company will not participate. Look at your pay stubs. First of all, if you don't look at your pay stubs every once in a while, just to make sure your company's not fucking up, please do because they do. Trust me, as a tax preparer, so they do. how much money, just out of curiosity, in this mm-hmm. four-month period, are we talking about extra take-home? We're talking about like... 6.2%. Uh, so okay. we're talking about a couple hundred bucks extra. Well, it... it Probably. It depends on your salary. I mean, there, Unders- are, there are caps to like... It's, it's supposed to be, quote-unquote, lower wage earners. But if you earn over a certain amount, they stop... Withholding Social Security. Anyway, I'm just, like, let's but say, here's here we, we don't need to go into the weeds. Here's okay. the here's the point I'm getting at. It's like you'll get an extra couple of hundred bucks, maybe a thousand, whatever. That you'll have that's to. That's not an insignificant amount. It is not, people. but you will have to pay it back. Yes. Whereas Wall Street gets six trillion <laughs> yes. just stuffed into their pockets. This is not a bailout. Please do not yes. mistake this for any sort of bailout deferral. Is not means exactly forgiveness. That. It means yeah. you put off paying it, but then it's not just you put off paying it. Oh, and you pay it little little bits over the next two years. No, you're gonna have to pay it back in the same period it was originally deferred. So anyway, 
if you have questions, message us. I'm happy to explain. If you need help reading your your pay stub, let me know. I can help with that, too. I am an enrolled agent. I am actually qualified to give this advice, so. Unlike randos on Twitter. Oh, my God. I fucking have never been more fucking upset than when people were like, oh, no. Individuals pay into unemployment. Individuals pay into unemployment. I'm like, not in the fucking U.S. We don't. Are we entitled to it? Fuck yeah. We put a lot, hell of a lot more into our jobs than we get compensated. Thank you, capitalism. <laughs> should, like, should, we just, should we just move on to the topic? I know. Let's just, let's just okay. move on to the topic. So. <laughs> it's going to get more political, I warn you. <laughs> but. Uh, we are visiting a new country this week. Country we have okay. not done a disaster on, but as we will learn, a country that has suffered almost nothing but disasters for ages, for centuries. Afghanistan? No, that's no. a good guess, although there's Any, many. Anywhere in many. Africa? Ah, there you go. You got, You hit the continent. Yeah. You hit the continent. NCAA. Nobody cares about Africa. That's from uh, the movie Blood Diamond. Oh, okay. What yeah. would it? What is that in reference to? Well, why blood... did? Why were they picking on the NCAA? I mean, no, no, no. He, the term oh, NCAA oh. in Africa means mm. nobody cares about Africa. Not the National College no. Athletic Association. No. I doubt they even know what the hell that is. I thought you were <laughs> making an allusion to the fact that, like, when there's a championship game, they print shirts. Like champions. Oh well, sides. yeah, that's true. Yeah, that that and does then happen. The losers merch gets sent. Gets sent to, to humanitarian somewhere. Purposes yes. for clothing. Yes. because it's good clothing. Somewhere in Africa, the Buffalo Bills are the greatest <laughs> dynasty of the nineties because right. they won four straight. Because <laughs> that's what all the clothing would say. <laughs> yes. There is a meme out there that I meant to uh, copy at one point. Um, there, there is like a picture of these kids wearing. Buffalo Bills, Bills Super Bowl champ from like each different Super Bowl. Yeah. They're all together. I'm like, that is a fucking funny picture. But yeah, yeah. All right. So, so th- to those kids, that's the greatest dynasty ever. Suck on that, Patriots. <laughs> you can, you can't say that anymore. You work for Patriots territory right now. I do, yeah. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is the story of the Maputo Arms Depot explosion. Mm. So on March 22nd, 2007, a series of explosions at an arms depot in Maputo, Mozambique, mm. killed an official 83 people, more likely over 100, and injured hundreds more. And we'll get a little bit more into the numbers of that. So sources for this, um, I mean, after all, there's dozens of books on any topic we want to cover, and I really should just read them all. <laughs> Fuck you, Queen Ping. One star review. We won't get into it. Follow us on Facebook. All right. Sources. Africa Research Bulletin, the Associated Press, Encyclopedia Britannica, globalministries.org, globalsecurity.org, the Halo Trust, Not the Type, Finding My Place in the Real World by Camilla Thurlow. I'll get back to her. NPR, The Nuclear Notebook, found at defconwarningsystem.com. Small Arms Survey, the Southeastern and Eastern Europe Clearinghouse for the Control of Small Arms and Light Weapons, also known as CSAC, and Wikipedia, but very little from Wikipedia. 
I'm proud to say. There's just a little stub of an article on this on Wikipedia. And the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> what did the Clinton Foundation they do? They probably did something terrible in Africa. I'm mm. just throwing them out there. <laughs> well, They could have been the cause of this, for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, the United States is at least somewhat complicit in this, but we'll get into that. Okay, so this is actually kind of a timely topic, considering... And we will not, we will eventually cover this one day, but not until there's some distance. Obviously, a few weeks ago, there was a massive explosion in Beirut, Mm -hmm. Lebanon, and it was from improper storage of a hazardous material, Mm -hmm. ammonium nitrate, I think is what they suspect. All that's still going on. But that's okay, because all the Republicans nationwide are cutting red tape to make sure that you can store it improperly you know regulations are really just the government's way and so that's why when people say don't get political fuck you this is all political disasters are political either in the cause or in the response or all or of both the above. yes so fuck you for saying we're getting political queen fucking ping asshole people anyway okay so because like i said we're not gonna do that disaster for a while because it's better when we have some perspective right um when all the investigations and all the information has come out so i'm gonna i'm gonna guess there's probably almost no regulation in this country for that sort of thing well well let's keep going so the sad fact is that these deadly explosions have happened for centuries and yes, will they continue have. Yeah. to happen because storing any hazardous material will always lead to a risk that they might leak Explode. I mean, it happens. How many stories have we done from our own country where this happens? Not necessarily from weapons storage, but well, we haven't actually covered a ton of. Mi- well, we did the the Cleveland Clinic was because mm-hmm. of the film. Uh, the Texas Texas City right um, oil, oil, lots expl- of yes. refinery mm-hmm. stuff. Um, we also did the Wangong Chang mm-hmm. explosion, which I'll get to in a second, but. So, uh, or otherwise just endanger the general population, not not to mention those who work with the hazardous materials. We know that anyone who works with hazardous materials is themselves at immediate risk, but the general population, too, is in a lot of cases. So I used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our, our last armory explosion was way back in, I looked it up, back in episode 82, the Wangong Chang explosion of 1626. So and that was not long after explosives were developed. We kind of went into the history of gunpowder and stuff at that point. So this type of accident has been going on for literally centuries, and no signs that it will top, stop anytime soon, or most likely ever. So I came. No, ac- it'll never. There's always yeah. going to be something. Always war. Always yeah. weapons. Right. Yeah. So I came across this disaster by reading that Camilla Thurlow book I mentioned. Uh, So I do recommend the book. It's very interesting. I bought the book because Camilla was on the 2017 series of Love Island UK. (laughs) She found love, people. She dumped the bellend Johnny, who was just a complete arse, and who ended up getting dumped by Tyla anyway. Um, for the hot Calvin Klein model Jamie, to whom she, with whom she is still, and with whom she is expecting a baby. I sanctioned none of this for you. <laughs> she was a standout among the contestants of that year because, in a sea of 
influencers and actors and models and singers or wannabes generally, her career was in explosive ordnance disposal, also known as EOD. So to oversimplify it, she worked with a nonprofit that helped getting rid of landmines and other what they call remnants of war in areas that had experienced war or other conflict so that the people who lived there could safely use and travel over the land. I believe in the United States military, um, in the Marines anyway, that's known as they're known as engineers. The people who they do go that out, work. They go out and find mines and explosives and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. She I believe in, that's what they're She called. worked in non-government organizations. Sure. She, so right. she, worked, uh, she worked in Mozambique for a time much later than this event. Because I think she's only like 31 or something. So this was, uh, it was several years ago, but it was still well after 2007. Uh, and she worked with the Halo Trust, another source from this episode, which I mentioned before. And she mentioned this explosion in passing because she worked in Mozambique. And so she mentioned the 2007 explosion. So that's how I heard about this in the first place. And this is also... Thank you, Love Island. <laughs> thank you, Camilla. And this is also our first visit to Mozambique. So let's talk about Mozambique. So Mo- Mozambique... Should I should I quiz you on where geographically Mozambique is? Okay, it's, I know what continent it's on. <laughs> yes, it's about it's it. Southeastern Africa. Sure. So it's just north of South Africa on the east coast of the continent, along the Indian Ocean. Now, notable to probably nobody listening except me is the fact that our dear sainted Freddie Mercury was born in Zanzibar, which is a small island off the coast of Tanzania, which is the country that borders. Mozambique to the north. So he was, this is his area where where our dearly beloved St. <laughs> Freddy was born. Let us all have a moment in honor of St. Freddy Mercury. Amen. <laughs> all right. The other neighboring countries of Mozambique are Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. As well. I've heard of all of those. As well as, have you heard of this? Because I had not. Eswatini. I don't. What'd you call me? Have you ever heard of Swaziland? I, uh, I I've have. heard of the language Swahili. Yeah, no. Swazi- okay. so, so literally in 2018, Swaziland became known as Eswatini. Oh, okay. So this is... Uh, I, I am, will never cease to be amazed at how frequently the global map changes. I don't know why I'm so amazed, because global politics is all about war and conflict and conquering and everything else. And it doesn't change as rapidly today as it used to, so... Well, it does, just not over here, not in our hemisphere. I mean, yeah. it really doesn't. Uh, well, once, uh, I feel like they, once the USSR fell, things changed drastically. Oh, yeah. And they then really it started have, to stabilize well, a little really bit. It really kind of have continued. I don't know, Africa's always been volatile, as far well. as. Uh, South Sudan became a country, or North, I think it was South Sudan, mm-hmm. in 2011 or 12, something like well, that. Well, like I said, Eswatini yeah. was just recently renamed, so... The early days of the area of Africa that would become known as Mozambique are, in a nutshell, the usual tale. Indigenous people settle, Europeans come along, fuck everything up, enslave people. What are you talking about? That never happens. <sighs> Go listen to The Lost Colony of Roanoke. <laughs> End of episode three if you want to hear my speech on colonialism. Anyway. Uh, The early peoples arriving in the area came during the early first millennium of the Common Era, so in the zeros and 100s and 200s and 300s, migrating from more northerly parts of Africa. 
And by the end of that millennium, a settlement had been established called Mapungubwe along the Limpopo River. And the Limpopo River is what serves as the border between modern day Zimbabwe and South Africa. So the people of this area were largely engaged, as most people of the time were just about everywhere, in agriculture. It was an well, agrarian sure. society. Yeah. Human society was an agrarian society, as well as mining. The area is rich in minerals. So, Then, of course, in the late 15th century, the Europeans came along and God damn it, I don't know, really know how to put any other spin on this other than hashtag fuck colonialism. But remember, they arrived in their 1400s hot topic clothes. They hadn't gotten around, <laughs> they hadn't gotten around to the 1500s yet. I think this was like 1498, so yeah, they were very they were close. close. <laughs> There's always a bit of a hangover. So some of the 1500s hot topic clothes probably had a little bit of influence from the 1400s. Now, if you had to guess what European uh, kingdom ended up colonizing Mozambique, what would you guess? My first guess would be Spain for some reason. Good guess, and you're very close. It was Portugal. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I have I have a, a joke that's going to be beautifully corny, but I have to set it up slightly. <laughs> so do you know who Vasco da Gama was? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. So he made a voyage around the Cape of Good Hope, which led to the, the Portuguese into eventually colonizing Africa. So what, what I, the, my joke is thanks to Gama... Yeah, like thanks, Obama. It's cute. Very cute. Is it cute? It's very you. (laughs) It is okay. So there, the Portuguese clause remained fully embedded in Mozambique for over four hundred years until the rise of Frelimo. The try my hand at Portuguese here. Frenta de Libertação de Mozambique which is the Mo- Mozambique Liberation Front, essentially. So, so again, Portugal is colonizing this country all the way up until Frelimo is, is getting founded in 1962. Yeah. So we're not even talking like, oh, and then in the 1700s there was a... No, yeah. this is way... This is like 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not that long ago. It's so, not ancient history. No. It's like some people are still alive that, that remember this. And Ferlimo was formally founded in 62 by someone I would love to learn a lot more and I intend to learn a lot more about because he seems very interesting. Dr. Eduardo Mandlane. So when he founded Ferlimo, he was 42 and a native of Mozambique, which was then called Portuguese East Africa. And very, very interesting man. So, Mandlane initially tried to attend college in South Africa, but he was forced to leave there after a year because of apartheid, right? So, uh, that is, for those who may not know, which hopefully you do know at least a little something, um, that was systematically, governmentally mandated and approved racial segregation Mm -hmm. in South Africa. That's what Nelson Mandela was in prison over the whole thing. I was alive when that was going Mm -hmm. on. (laughs) That didn't end until the fall of the Soviet Union. Until 1990. So he he couldn't stay at university in South Africa. So after a short stint at a a university in Lisbon, Portugal, obvious Mm -hmm. ties there, right? Because uh, he was living in a Portuguese colony. He transferred to Oberlin College 
in Ohio. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. In the United States, where he studied anthropology and sociology. Now, by this point, it was kind of notable that he was a much older than average student, especially for the time. Uh, he was attending these schools in his early 30s and got his bachelor's when he was 33. So Yeah, and at that time, if you were in your <clears throat> 30s, you looked like you were in your 60s today. Well, think about this. Imagine somebody in the late 50s attending Oberlin College in Ohio who's a black man native to Africa. Like, can you imagine how... I, I would love to learn more about his experience about attending college in Ohio in the late 50s as a black man from Africa. I imagine he had some pretty wild stories to tell. I'm guessing anywhere he went in America <laughs> as a black man from Africa in the 1950s, no he would have had kidding. some stories to tell. No kidding. So he went on to pursue his postgrad degree. He got his master's from Northwestern and his PhD oh, no from Harvard. Wow. Yeah. I feel fucking lazy. I know, right? <laughs> Very well-educated man. So he pursued his, uh, or sorry, he traveled extensively back to his home continent of Africa as he worked within the trusteeship department of the United Nations. So he was working in like a government organization, UN. right? Mm-hmm. But he became increasingly interested in the Mozambique liberation movement. So in 1962, he was working at an, as an assistant professor of anthropology at Syracuse University. Oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. When he founded Frelimu, and then he resigned from Syracuse in the following year so he could be physically present in Mozambique. So, super well-educated man in sociology and anthropology is like, I've got a nice cushy little gig here as a... Syracuse is a good university, too, oh, right? Like, it's yes. known for... It's yeah. private? Is it, it private? is private, okay. yeah. So it's a great private. He's like... I think he was like... I could be speaking out of turn here. I think he was like one of the heads or founders of the African Studies Department. I mean, like, he was... He was an assistant professor. He wasn't tenured or anything, but it was it was still a good job. But he was just like... Shit, like, I gotta all go my back. people are still <laughs> fucking dealing with this shit. Like, we need to free Mozambique. So he went back to be in the thick of it. I I, I find him fascinating. I want to learn this more about is, him. Yeah, that, that, for sure. He went, he's gone to four different colleges. Right? Like prestigious colleges. <laughs> yes. I've heard of all of them. Yes. <laughs> so Ferlima was not the only group working towards an independent and democratically led Mozambique. There were several others found in the late 50s and early 60s, some of which were a little more ready to engage in small-scale guerrilla tactics like attacks on military patrols and communications infrastructure. Now, Manlane was initially hesitant to have Ferlimu engage in similar tactics. Um, Partially, I imagine, although this is complete speculation because he was an educated person, I'm imagining he's thinking, can we do this without any bloodshed maybe? But on the other hand, the other part was much more tactical. He wanted to build support internal in Mozambique. So they were mostly working in uh, in Tanzania, so just outside Mozambique, trying to foster support within the country so that when they did rise up, it there would they would have numbers within the country as well. Eventually, outside pressures and or other organizations fighting for a free Mozambique led Ferlimo to a, launch an actual insurgency, which began in earnest in September of 1964. 
So as with most coups, insurgencies, other situations in which a country experiences major civil unrest, like to a point where they're actually trying to overthrow a government. um, Sounds like a preview to me. (laughs) Other countries had interests in the outcome of the conflict and offered their support to Frelimo. I'm sure with pure white is the driven snow motives, you know, like the U.S. Every Uh. time we've intervened, it's only for the best of intentions democracy and shit (laughs) democracy and 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 freedom and peace that might as well be the u.s slogan democracy Democracy and and shit all right so the countries that supported the movement tended to lean to the left politically because frilimo during this period was largely supporting a free mozambique under a socialist democratic system for that reason the countries that supported the movement included socialist leaning and i say socialist leaning because they aren't really truly socialist countries Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, uh, and communist countries. Although, uh, although Denmark's prime minister is a socialist. Well, that's good, but yeah. they're still running on a market economy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and communist countries. And is a woman too. Denmark's prime minister is a woman. That's great. I can't remember her name though. And communist countries like the USSR and China. Now, the USSR specifically supplied arms to the liberation movement, and it's possible that China did as well, though not confirmed. In 1969, this is this is the bad part. Well, shit, there's a lot of bad parts. But here's a bad part. Here's a sad this part. This is this is a bad part. In 1969, Eduardo Mondlane received a book in the mail. Oh. When he opened the package, mm. it exploded and killed him. And it's been 50 years, and no one knows for sure who assassinated him. There were a lot of people after him. I mean, he was a leader of a major I'm political sure, freedom. I'm movement. sure the list uh, at this point has been narrowed down to a thousand. Right. Well, that's the problem. Like, for people who are truly leading an insurgency, it's, yes, of course, it's the opposition, outside interests, but even inside own in groups there can be infighting and oh of course too. well there pretty so, much always is yeah because there's all right what direction do we really want to take this mm-hmm. so so the fight for the liberation of mozambique lasted a decade in spring of 1974 the tide of national support turned against the ongoing conflict and pressed for a resolution so over the following year, transitioning, transitionary government operated until Mozambique was officially granted independence from Portugal in June of 1975. So that's when Mozambique officially became Mozambique independent of hmm. Portugal. So in the wake of this victory, it quickly became apparent that Ferlimu had inherited a country experiencing the economic and social devastation of a decade-long battle. So, yay, congratulations, you won, you're free, your people are struggling. Yeah, here's your prize. Uh, you have no infrastructure, no Everything economy. war-torn. <laughs> yeah. Like, congratulations. Well, that becomes the economy out. is rebuilding everything, mm-hmm. hopefully. Well, let's get to the next mm-hmm. phase. A resistance to Frelimu quickly rose and organized as a party known as Renamo. I rolled my R a little too hard there. Resistencia Nacional Mozambicana. The National Resistance of Mozambique? Yeah, the Mozambican National Resistance, exactly. So that plunged already conflict-weary Mozambique into a shattering civil war that would last 15 years. Displace five million people and kill a million people. 
and the war didn't end until after the fall of the Soviet Union. A formal agreement was reached in 1992, leading to the country's first democratic election in 1994. Now, like I said, it's important to note, too, that in the late days of the Cold War leading up through the early 1990s, these were also the last days of the practice of institutionalized segregation known as apartheid in South Africa. So this was a massively turbulent time in the entirety of Southern and Southeastern Africa. This, the whole region was struggling here. I know this is a lot of background to set up, but this is really pertinent to this, this disaster. Um, and this disaster really is all about the circumstances. Uh, so Mozambique has over, oh, okay, yeah, um, now I'm about to go into yet another tangent that, yes, I understand will feel, again, disconnected, but this all interrelates. So Mozambique has, over the years, had to deal not only with 25 years of conflict and the results after that, I mean, just because they had their first democratic democratically held elections in 1994 doesn't mean like, oh, now in 2020, everything's perfect, right? Oh, it doesn't mean that? (laughs) You sure? Did you look that up? (laughs) Not only was there war and conflict, but Mozambique has had to deal with some unintended climatological challenges as a result of being in upheaval for a large portion of the 20th century. So the topography of the country is varied. There are like coastal lowlands along the southern coast, along the Indian Ocean, and that kind of melds into the mountains as you move inland. And then there are more rugged coasts as you move along north. So it's a really diverse country. And like many tropical climate locations, it has a wet season and a dry season. The wet season is in the summer. The dry season is in the winter. Very typical. But remember, they're in the southern hemisphere. So their summer is October to March. Their winter is April to September. Like that's roughly the the seasons. Uh, So the country has experienced many extreme weather events, more specifically devastating droughts, alternating with deadly flooding. So they've gotten the worst of both cases. After the Civil War, uh, which coincided with... Oh, sorry. Wait. After the Mozambique Civil War? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. That's. I'm clearly not talking about the U.S. Civil War. We're talking about several countries here, Mm -hmm. so... So after the Civil War, there were, that coincided with periods of drought in the outlying areas of the country, so more people moved closer to the coast where they became more vulnerable to hurricanes, tropical cyclones, or cyclones as they're called in in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, So uh, they were more vulnerable to tropical cyclones, which happens sometimes with alarming frequency. For example, last year, 2019, two separate major cyclones hit Mozambique, causing widespread devastation. That's why I say, like, Mozambique as a country has experienced nothing but ongoing disasters, both war and natural like it's it's pretty awful uh in early 2000 the country experienced a whole separate disaster five solid weeks of heavy rain that led to massive flooding killed 700 people thousands of cattle and left an estimated 44,000 people homeless so, you know, I always say that we'll never run out of disasters to cover in our show. I feel like an entire podcast could be done about the disasters of Mozambique. Like, this poor country, the people of this country are just, like, get shat on constantly. It's awful how much they have had to endure. So, 
By the time, uh, all right, the accord had been reached, the elections were held in 1994, uh, Mozambique had been a country embroiled in conflict for 25 years as it sought to transition from colonialism to liberation. And not just conflict, but hardcore guerrilla warfare that involved horrific crimes against humanity on all sides. So this wasn't a war fought with like a threat of nuclear annihilation or like economic sanctions. There was gunfire, direct attacks, murder, sexual assault on civilians, and terrifyingly landmines and other secretive weaponry designed to maim and injure those fighting and civilians alike. So something I learned from Camilla Thurlow's book is that landmines are not necessarily uh, built to kill they are built to maim. Sure. Well, they're built to take take you out, take you out the battlefield. Right, but either by killing you or injuring you. No, they are built to maim. Okay. So, in other words, they're not trying to kill you; they're trying to torture you, mm-hmm. which is awful. Not that killing you is better. I'm just like it's still it's all awful. Um, So I'm getting into this because, first of all, I think it's fascinating. And I also don't think that a lot of us from the United States and maybe the broader Euro-American world understand the struggles of much of the world, especially developing countries. And then finally, the, the dangers of battle, war, conflict, even to civilians, is pretty well understood. But I don't think that people realize how much danger remains in a country that has seen active battle, even after a formal agreement is reached, and there is no more ongoing conflict. Well, of course, because you still have animosity on all sides. Not only that, but the physical remnants. Mm-hmm. So those landmines stay where they are, unless, they go off or not. unless someone removes them. And can they? These can remain active and fully capable of maiming or killing anyone unlucky enough to make an unknowing misstep for decades. They still find all over Europe. Yes. Uh, what is it? What is it? something ordinance? Explosive ordinance. But it's but it's anti personnel. No, but it, it never went off. It has a term. Oh, non-explode, unexploded. Something like that. Anyway, unexploded ordinance. Yeah. But uh, they find that shit all over the oh, place, yeah. all over Europe, still to this day. Yes, that's true. Um, and, and I'm sh- and all over here. I'm sure. Well, that's so. That's lots the of, thing. Most of the world. That. A lot of these weapons can stay active for a, a disturbingly long time. And so if you're a kid walking to school or somebody yeah. working their land, you can end up and there are thousands of cases where people lose limbs or sure. digits or lives, including children, including adults, everybody, because these unknown i mean you don't know where they are so they can just happen um and additionally animals can be killed or injured with these and while that is on one hand if you're like me awful for the animal uh, even if you're not like a bleeding heart welfareist like i am uh or abolitionist i should say uh something you do need to keep in mind is that a lot of families in this region rely on cattle for mm-hmm. food and for subsistence. Like mm-hmm. they'll sell the meat from the animal or the milk or whatever the case may be. Or they will literally use their shit to grow other things. 
you know, use the yeah, right, yes, the manure the, and all that. Yes, yeah. there's mm-hmm. there's all sorts of uses for cattle. Animals are incredibly yes. valuable to people's livelihoods, mm-hmm. especially in developing nations. So, after the Civil War, Mozambique remained dangerously full of landmines. The UK-based Halo Trust, which is what Camilla Thurlow worked with began working with the local government and employing Mozambican citizens to clear the land starting in 1993. They finally declared the country mine-free in 2015. 22 years it took to clear 171,000 mines. More than Like, how the fuck do you have time to plant all those? And those are the ones that just didn't go off. Right? You know, I know because in in Camilla Thurlow's like, book, if you want to learn more, she talks about some really interesting detail about how they do this, how they re- find and remove these ordinances. Oh, I'm sure but, it's yeah, very careful. Imagine planting them. Uh, I, I don't know. Where she the did fuck not did, get into that. Where the fuck did they get them all? I mean, they. I, the USSR, for one thing. Ah, okay. Remember well, sure. I said yeah, they, they were being pro- supplied with a lot yeah. of arms. So. Um, so while this is fantastic, obviously a huge victory for the people of Mozambique that this, these very dangerous weapons have been removed, landmines are not the only dangerous remainder of the previous decades of conflict. The weapons used in war, shells, grenades, guns, tanks, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, like you name it, don't just disappear after a conflict is over. In fact, Common sense holds that most countries keep some level of weapons on hand and, in fact, frequently manufacture and supply weapons to other countries. Now it's... <laughs> and, and, and or terrorist groups or whoever will buy them. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. The U.S. is a big arms dealer. <laughs> uh, so uh, it stands to reason that while these weapons are in existence, they should be stored as safely as possible. And I say as possible because it's recognized. Well, it can't. It's never 100% exactly. safe. Exactly. You cannot right. eliminate risk. In this case, you can only mitigate it, mm-hmm. right? These are hazardous materials. They will always pose a danger to those working in any armed storage facility. However. It's just like because we've been watching um, the Michael Jordan documentary lately. The Last Dance. Mm-hmm. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cute. <laughs> Less dangerous, but cute. Yes. Uh, so risk to the general population can be mitigated by taking certain steps, like storing arms in remote areas or underground or taking other steps like that. For example... The United States maintains multiple facilities that store possibly our most dangerous arms. Oh, Nuclear so weapons. We watched a fucking 60 Minutes thing on that. Yeah. And how all the, the technology that they have stored at this one facility is from like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. And that'll come up. That A lot of these arms are obsolete. But uh, the largest of uh, the U.S.'s stockpile of nuclear weaponry is stored at the Kirtland Underground Munitions and Maintenance Storage Complex at the Kirtland Air Force Base, disturbingly Kirt- close to Kirt- Albuquerque. Kirt- Kirtland. Oh, Kirtland. Kirtland. Okay. K-I-R-T-L-A-N. Well, it would make sense that a lot of nuclear weapons would be in the desert. Yes, but here's how disturbingly close to Albuquerque it is. Mm-hmm. The Air Force Base shares runway space with the Albuquerque Airport. Nice. Now, it's underground. I'm a... 
I'm. It doesn't fucking matter. Crossing if my fingers for anyone who lives in Albuquerque <laughs> that they're like they're fortified. But at any rate, I'm gonna hope the the soil <clears throat> is not contaminated. That's where I was thinking. At any rate, of course, proper storage to mitigate mitigate risk is the ideal. Outside of not having these weapons at fucking all, but okay. But many facilities are dangerously close to residential areas, mismanaged, or otherwise not properly mitigating the risk. That's likely what happened in the Beirut instance as well. The arms depot in this disaster, oh, remember, this is all for a specific disaster that we haven't even gotten to, In uh, is located in Malhazin, a suburb of Maputo, the capital of Mozambique, and apparently one of the poorer neighborhoods of the area. I... I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing they're like, eh, whatever. It's in a poorer area. Exactly. So now remember when I said that the USSR, USSR supplied weapons to Frelimu during the Mozambican Civil War? I didn't remember that, but now I do. Okay. Well, they also built this armory that exploded. So, and, and that was in 1984 and it caused problems almost immediately. There were at least two, two, Two prior to this disaster, two prior smaller explosions at the depots. This wasn't even the first explosion here. One happened in 1985, like right after it was built. Shocking. Yeah. And one in January of 2007, just two months before this disaster. Sneaky fucking Russians. (laughs) What's that from? It's from, uh, I believe that's from Snatch. Okay. Is that the one where you can't understand what they're saying, or is that two heads in a duffel bag? That's the one no, where Snatch. Snatch is where Brad Pitt's character, That's you can't right. understand what he's saying. That's right. There's actually a subtitle specific yes, for it on the DVD. That. Yeah. What's a DVD? Yeah, huh? Uh, by this time, the armory was a military depot, and there were over 900 tons of ammunition being stored there. And that included rockets, cannons, mortars, and tank shells. It's also possible that there was white phosphorus ammunition present, which we'll get into later. Which is illegal. Is it? Yes. Really? Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Supposed to be. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after the January explosion, which injured several people, the government of Mozambique pledged to move the armory to a safer place. And they most definitely had not done this by March 22nd, 2007. So... By March 2007, Mozambique was already pretty battered by disastrous weather events, like I said before. So in February, Cyclone Fabio had hit the country, killing a dozen people and injuring many more. Additionally, the country was experiencing a, a broader drought, and this was all compounded by an oppressively hot summer. By Thursday, March 22nd, the day of the explosion, the temperature was up to 93 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 34 Celsius, which is hot. I mean, that's almost what it got up to here today. But first of all, they're not in North Carolina. And second of all, uh, this is March 22nd, which is like the equivalent of September 22nd to us. This is kind of late in the season, early, like late in the fall for it to be that warm, I would think. So obviously part of the hazard of storing arms includes the possibility that they are sensitive to climate. So around 4 p.m. local time on March 22nd, 2007, the first 
explosion took place. And I say first because this was a series of explosions and fires that didn't stop until around 11 a.m. the following morning. Jesus Christ. The explosions rocked the entire area, fully audible throughout the whole city of Maputo. Windows exploded from buildings as far away as five and a half miles or nine kilometers. Cell phone footage is available on YouTube of the explosion, and it's really scary. So in this one video I saw, it was kind of taken from a little ways away, right? We're talking early cell phone. Early cell phone, yes. It yeah. wasn't smartphone footage. No. It was early. But it was it was actually Maybe. pretty clear, oh, all things interesting. considered. I assume it was cell phone. It's possible it was just kind of grainy handheld camera footage. I'm not sure. But so uh, it sounds like artillery fire. Like you hear the whistling. Sure. Because well, yeah. it, it is. It was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Then there was a massive boom and then a huge mushroom cloud. Now it's. Jesus. Yeah. Just, just like what we saw in, uh, in Beirut recently. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Th- that's. Yes. This is. This draws a lot of parallels because this is what happens mm-hmm. when there's an explosion of improperly stored hazardous material. Anyway, uh, it's important to note that not only did the arms explode, but the explosion sent many unexploded weapons flying too. Oh, well, sure. Right? Yes, Just whatever of was in there, yes. the shrapnel, right? Throughout the whole city, throughout the entire capital, unexploded weapons were found as far as six miles or 10 kilometers away from the wow. armory, which clearly throw, uh, posed another threat to the population. So the official government announced death toll was 83 people, including military personnel working at the depot and also civilians who lived nearby. But almost all non-government sources put the actual death toll closer to 107. So over 100 is a common, like, everybody but the government was saying that. Uh, Now... Uh, uh, apparently a number of those killed were children. Again, horrible. I, I feel like that's the awful thread within the past few that we've covered. Is a number is. of kids dying. It's awful. Yes. It's awful. More than... Let, let's do an episode, the next episode, <laughs> let's do an episode where the kids are the ones that are causing the killing. That'll, <laughs> that'll be more fun. No. <laughs> yeah, it'll no. be more fun. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't think that will be, be fun It'll be more fun than them dying. It's just all sad. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, the government count of the injured were more than 300, but the actual counts were probably closer to five to five or 600. Well, I mean, yeah. And those it's... injuries ranged from bruises, scratches, eardrum damage to, like, maiming. Mm-hmm. And uh, limbs missing and stuff. There were accounts of whole families being killed, many being decapitated and or maimed. Jesus Christ. And many children were also separated from their parents in the ensuing chaos. Oh, sure. Families were separated, didn't know. Yeah. It it was really awful. There were stories of like, um, because these are weapons. These are artillery weapons. Like that a shell literally hit. Like one house and thirteen people died inside. It, it, it was a military attack, essentially, except an accidental military. Except nobody was carrying it out. Right, right. It was an unintentional military <laughs> yes. attack on the capital city of a civilian population. Yeah. 
So because the arsenal had experienced previous and recent explosions and the government had promised to move it, which they didn't carry out, local residents were outraged that this was a foreseeable disaster that had not been prevented by the government. And that, my friends, is why this will never not be political. <laughs> because... Well, when you're dealing with disasters, yes. period, like like we mentioned earlier, and like with... Especially, like... The lead up could be something political. The aftermath, could, the event itself could yep. be something all of the all of the above. So yes. infrequently is no one to blame yes. and the response measure. <laughs> yes. That that is very rare. And those are actually they're they're nice but they're sad in their own way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they happen anyway. And there's even politics involved with that. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't like Susie, so we didn't rescue her. <laughs> God. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious, though. <laughs> Poor Susie. Yeah. So the defense ministry of Mozambique was quick to blame the explosion on the high temperatures of the day. Now, to be fair, this was highly possible, though obviously the location of the armory was not the weather's fault, nor was the improper non-climate controlled storage. So... Independent reports found that a fluctuation in temperatures, so like it was really hot during the day, it got cooler at night, and so these arms were constantly getting reheated and cooling down and reheated and cooling down, were very likely to have caused the chemical stabilizers used in some of the arms to decompose, which left them more susceptible to catching fire. Some of the mortar shells stored there were also known to have been susceptible to high temperatures specifically. And honestly, in an armory, once one thing goes off... Oh, yeah, the whole fucking thing. (laughs) The fire can spread to other weapons and and cause them to go off. Of course. Further, there were no records of any testing the military had done to ensure that the weapons were remaining stable. And in fact, they didn't even have the capability for anyone working there to have tested that. I mean, a single bullet, if you dropped it on the ground, could discharge. Mm Mm-hmm. Technically, now, yeah, it could. Now, yes, it absolutely mm-hmm. could. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine hundreds of... 900 tons. Hundreds <laughs> of mines, mortar shells, mm-hmm. all white phosphorus, which is, that's some fucking scary shit. Oh, we're going to get to that in just yeah. a second. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, speaking of white phosphorus, so it was possible that there are munitions containing white phosphorus being stored. White phosphorus is known to spontaneously combust mm-hmm. under the right conditions including high temperatures. And white phosphorus is an especially insidious weapon. It can literally burn a person straight to mm-hmm. and through yep. bone. Yeah. Like Swiss... I looked up, yes. I looked up no, pictures of wounds. It's I'm awful. I'm pretty sure it. that that, as far as the UN is concerned, is supposed to be illegal. You're mm-hmm. not supposed to have that. So while there... <laughs> not that it's going to stop people from doing it, but... A really horrible thing about this is while there aren't a ton of, like, descriptions... it's a slow burn, too. It's not... Yeah. While there aren't many detailed descriptions of how these probably 107 people died, unfortunately, it was likely in very scary and horrible ways. This was not... Yeah. This was warfare deaths during a non-warfare period. like During a non-warfare event. Yes. And, and against people literally just going about their daily lives. It's awful. It's awful. 
So after the explosion, the Interior Ministry of Mozambique ordered that local police and firefighters help the military destroy what weapons remained at the depot. Remnants of arms in the vicinity remained for years longer, and NGOs, like including the Halo Trust, worked to clear the area, and they finished the work in 2015. Okay. The plan was to turn the area, like the area where the depot was, into a nature park. So I found a lot of references that they were planning to do that. That doesn't and sound like much, the best idea. Well, and, and not, I, I didn't really find any reference to the final product that that was actually done. The the upside to it is at least all the arms were disarmed. Mm-hmm. So people are not living with active munitions in that area anymore. So despite this particular area. Okay, I see. I, I was thinking that, you know, they're. But there's still no, some scattered ordinance here and there, no? Well, I. Uh, yes, um, uh, they worked to get rid of anything dangerous. Right. So it, I guess it's possible there was discharge stuff, but I would think uh, in the nature park they would have cleared it out. I would hope but so. Anyway. But... Despite this particular area of Mozambique finally being rid of the dangerous depot, it's really just a drop in the bucket as far as these dangerous facilities go. The small arms survey has kept records of unplanned explosions at munition sites, which are known as UEMS, unexplained, uh, uh, sorry, um, unplanned explosions at munition sites. So accidental explosions, mm-hmm. right? So, so they've been keeping records since 1979 of these. Between the time they started recording these incidents and December of last year, so 40 years, right? Can I take so, a guess? Um, what are you going to guess? Like how many of explosions have there been? Okay, yeah. sure. Um, I know I'm gonna Samsonite it. Okay, but I'm gonna go with fifteen hundred. That sounds like a nice number. Six hundred twenty-three. Damn it. <laughs> That's still a lot over four. That's years. still way too many. That's six hundred and twenty-three too many. So, so the so yeah, there were six hundred twenty-three UEMS. Now the small arms survey considers a casualty. Anyone killed or injured. So keep that in mind when I say casualty, okay? This is not just deaths, but this is deaths and injuries. Victims Mm -hmm. overall, right? So those 623 UEMs uh, killed or injured... 29,932 people. 30,000. Rounded up by by 68. Let's just say 30,000 30, people yeah. in 40 years. Because there's probably some people they missed along the line who are there. So well, Quite possibly. Yeah. So that's an average of nearly 750 people per year being either killed or injured by these unplanned explosions. The worst decade so far, I say so far, was the 2000s. Okay. So not even like the 80s or something. It saw 13,787 total casualties by these accidental explosions. 2002 alone clocked in with 7,416 kills. That kind of makes sense because um, travel... Post-9-11. Well, no. Well, I mean, by 2002, it's it's easier to travel. It's easier to get around the globe and to get to certain places. So it, it kind of makes sense that those numbers would, would go up over time. I think time. it's mostly people who live near these places that are at the most danger, not, not uh-huh. tourists, but uh-huh. I don't know. That's how I was thinking of it. The yeah. March 2007 Maputo explosion ranks as the ninth worst in those 40 years by casualty count. Jesus. And that, my friends, was the story of the Maputo Arms Depot explosion. 
<laughs> fucking, I mean. But why are we being so political? <laughs> well, not that. It's, uh, I mean, we, we do have the same problem in the United States. We, we do. The, this problem is yes, everywhere. Yeah. Unfortunately, developing countries fare the worst. Yeah. I mean, there are, uh, yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake, well, no, I'm not going to say it, because this might be something we, we get into a topic, something oh, that okay. happened very close to here in the 1950s. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, it's... That's, this was a terrible idea. But I mean, I, <clears throat> I think the two of us stopped watching 60 Minutes a long time ago. Yeah, we used to watch it a little bit. <clears throat> we a, did, until we realized that it was just all bullshit, um, for the most part. But uh, I do remember watching that one episode where they were touring. They toured, like, several nuclear arms facilities. I'm vaguely remembering it now. And the, all the technology that they had, like, I remember one door wouldn't lock correctly. Oh, God. And, like, shit like that. And mm-hmm. it's just like, what the fuck? Like, you have and you the other nuclear thing is, bombs And the here. other thing is, do you need tens of thousands of nuclear bombs? Literally ten. We'll do the job. Well, that, here's, that'll... here's the problem to disposing of these oh, arms. Oh, well, that's it's a whole that's what part of game. that's a part of the episode was about. I remember mm-hmm. because a lot of that shit is just sitting there, and they don't know. Like, what do we do? <laughs> well, they don't. Well, number one, they didn't have the funds to do anything with it. I remember mm-hmm. that. And the the second, they don't know. They don't know the long term effects of storing nuclear that's weapons right. because we don't know the long term effects of storing. It's still a new thing. Yeah. You know, um, we do know the half-life of right. <laughs> is mm-hmm. thousands of years old. Right. But uh, anyway. Yeah, it's it's just like, it's just one of those many, 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 many side effects of humans just abject horridness. Well, it's never going to stop. It's... <laughs> I mean, it's never going to stop. It's not. That's the really super depressing thing. No. Ugh. You know what's awful? <laughs> so many people have commented how they like to listen to us for, like, a little respite of not taking things too seriously. So, here, here's what I have to say about that. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Hope you enjoyed our show. Hello, my baby. Hello, there you go. My I was going to say. Hello, my ragtime gal. That'd be a good time to break that one out. But I thought, I just, I do actually kind Well, of, the history of it, I mean, it was it a- Isn't it fascinating? It was a deep history, but it all intertwined. You exactly. Know, it all, it all, I, found, I found all of this really interesting. I would love to learn more about Eduardo Mondlane. Just from this- I'm not, I'm not going to go out and say that I think he was an awesome guy. I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I don't know any more about him than what I I'm read. I'm going to guess if he went to four different colleges, he was at least a level-headed person. I mean, I would you guess. put out that know. he was trying to start a socialist Democrat government. I'm going to be a little on his side. But, like, and he fought against imperialism. I mean, that's all pretty badass. But I don't I'm know. I'm that. very interested in learning more about him. But, uh, it, I, yeah, I just found the history fascinating. And uh, I, I have to say, like, kudos to Camilla Thurlow as a little it's British white badass. lady yeah. for um, writing this book in which she went into massive detail about the conflict in various areas. She worked in Cambodia, Afghanistan, <clears throat> Zimbabwe, and Mozambique. And 
by writing this book, I think she's a lot of little white ladies like me are going to be reading that book and are going to learn a hell of a lot more than we actually knew before as a result, because we were just looking for, oh, it's Camilla from Love Island. She barely mentions Love Island. Like, she dated Prince Harry. She doesn't mention it at all. Is she really? This is her memoir. Oh, okay. And it is, it, it is not salacious. It is what it is, is introspective and incredibly interesting. And if you watch Love Island 2017, the <laughs> class act you figured Camilla was, I think she is. So, so. So on a fun note. Yeah. That was the Maputo Arms Depot explosion. Yes. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.